Chapter Seven of the Morgesons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Ellen Arden. The Morgesons by Elizabeth Stoddard. Chapter Seven. My life at Grandfather Warren's was one kind of penance, and my life at Miss Black's school another. Both differed from my home life. My filaments found no nourishment, creeping between the two, but the fibres of youth are strong. They do not perish. Grandfather Warren's house reminded me of the casket which imprisoned the genie. I had let loose a presence I had no power over, the embodiment of its gloom, its sternness, and its silence. With feeling comes observation. After that, one reasons. I began to observe. Aunt Mercy was not the Aunt Mercy I had known at home. She wore a mask before her father. There was a constraint between them. Each repressed the other. The result of this relation was a formal, petrifying, unyielding system, a system which, from the fact of its satisfying neither, was kept up the more rigidly. On the one side, from a morbid conscience, which reiterated its monitions against the dictates of the natural heart, on the other, out of respect and timidity. Grandfather Warren was a little, lean, leather-coloured man. His head was habitually bent, his eyes cast down. But when he raised them to peer about, their sharpness and clear intelligence gave his face a wonderful vitality. He chafed his small, well-shaped hands continually, his long polished nails clicked together with a shelly noise, like that which beetles make flying against the ceiling. His features were delicate and handsome. Gentle blood ran in his veins, as I have said. All classes in Barmouth treated him with invariable courtesy. He was aboriginal in character, not to be moved by antecedent or changed by innovation. A Puritan, without gentleness or tenderness, he scarcely concealed his contempt for the emollients of life, or for those who needed them. He whined over no misfortune, pined for no pleasure. His two sons, who broke loose from him, went into the world, lived wild, merry life, and died there, he never named. He found his wife dead by his side one morning. He did not go frantic, but selected a text for the funeral sermon, and when he stood by the uncovered grave, took off his hat, and thanked his friends for their kindness with a loud, steady voice. Aunt Mercy told me that after her mother's death his habit of chafing his hands commenced. It was all the difference she saw in him, for he never spoke of his trouble or acknowledged his grief by sign or word. Though he had been frugal and industrious all his life, he had no more property than the old rambling house we lived in, and a long, narrow garden attached to it, where there were a few plum and quince trees, a row of currant bushes, Aunt Mercy's beds of chamomile and sage, and a few flowers. At the end of the garden was a peaked roof pigsty. It was cleanly kept, and its inhabitant had his meals served with the regularity which characterized all that Grandfather Warren did. Beautiful pigeons lived in the roof, and were on friendly terms with the occupant on the lower floor. The house was not 
unpicturesque. It was built on a corner, facing two streets. One front was a story high, with a slanting roof. The other, which was two-storied, sloped like a giraffe's back, down to a wood shed. Clean cobwebs hung from its rafters, and neat heaps of fragrant chips were piled on the floor. The house had many rooms, all are more or less dark and irregularly shaped. The construction of the chambers was so involved, I could not get out of one without going into another. Some of the ceilings slanted suddenly, and some so gradually, that where I could stand erect and where I must stoop, I never remembered, until my head was unpleasantly grazed or my eyes filled with flakes of ancient lime-dust. A long chamber in the middle of the house was the shop, always smelling of woolen shreds. At sunset, summer or winter, Aunt Mercy sprinkled water on the unpainted floor and swept it. While she swept, I made my thumb sore by snipping the bits of cloth that were scattered on the long counter by the window with Granther's shears, or I scrawled figures with grey chalk where I thought they might catch his eye. When she had finished sweeping, she carefully sorted the scraps and put them into boxes under the counter. Then she neatly rolled up the brown paper curtains, which had been let down to exclude the afternoon sun, shook the old patchwork cushions from the osier bottom chairs, watered the rose geranium and the monthly rose, which flourished wonderfully in that fluffy atmosphere, set every pin and needle in its place, and shut the door, which was opened again at sunrise. Of late years, Granther's occupation had declined. No new customers came. A few, who did not change the fashion of their garb, still patronized him. His income was barely three hundred dollars a year, eked out to this amount by some small pay for offices connected with the church, of which he was a prominent member. From this income he paid his pulpit tithe, gave to the poor, and lived independent and respectable. Mother endeavored, in an unobtrusive way, to add to his comfort, but he would only accept a few herrings from the Surrey Weir every spring, and a basket of apples every fall. He invariably returned her presents by giving her a share of his plums and quinces. I had only seen Granther Warren at odd intervals. He rarely came to our house. When he did, he rode down on the top of the Barmouth stagecoach, returning in a few hours. As Mother never liked to go to Barmouth, she seldom came to see me. End of chapter 7